Hello and welcome to Historical Frictions, a historical fiction podcast where we delve into the nitty-gritty of history, fiction and everything in between. I'm Hilary and I'm joined as always by my co-host Tess. Hello! And excitingly, we had such a fun time with Lockie in our last episode, we have decided to invite him back to be a third co-host permanently. So hello, Lachlan. Hi guys, thanks for having me back. Very happy to be here again. Yay. <laughs> Welcome back. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Yeah, so we'll probably do a little bit of restructuring for our formatting in the coming months, but for this month, we're going to try and stick to our usual routine. So I'm reading the book today, and then Tess will be reading one later, and I think we're going to maybe talk about a bonus episode at the very end of the podcast. So yeah. But anyway, how, how are you both? We're back from our little hiatus. How's the break been for you? Yeah, fine. You were, you were both just <laughs> nodding as though people yeah, can yeah. see that. Yeah, podcast. busy. Um, it's been busy. Yeah. yeah. We've all been uh, teaching. Yes. Yeah. The semester started, second semester in Australia. If anyone's listening, not in Australia, I don't know. Um, there are. There are people who I think there are, right? Yeah. yeah. So oh, cool. we've all been getting stuck into teaching and marking and everything in the last few weeks. So it's been mm. uh, busy, but good. Yeah, yeah, I think the break that was kind of really needed because I also yeah. moved in the break. So mm-hmm. the idea of reading a book and trying to get a podcast out while I was moving was very yeah. stressful. <laughs> Let me say, yeah. It'd be a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking this is like the first time I've had a Zoom call sitting at this desk, like since we we're all in lockdown and everything. So it's, it's bringing mm. back some memories. <laughs> <laughs> Slowly getting triggered. That's good. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, no, I haven't used Zoom for a little while since I moved, I think. And so, like, I had a Zoom call with my supervisor yesterday and I was like, this is really weird. Like, I haven't done this for a while, but it was so, like, normalised during the whole lockdown process. So, yeah. So, I think we might just get straight into talking about the book then. Yeah, excellent. So, Hilary, you read The Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams. Uh, First up, did you like it? Yes, I did. Yay. Yay. <laughs> uh, it took a little effort to get into it, but after that, I really loved it. I found that I loved it. It's a really good story. And I'm also going to say now that I'm going to try not to spoil it too much because I want our listeners to actually have a chance to go and read it for themselves because I actually really mm. think it's a great story. And yeah, I think it's actually worth going out and reading yourself. But yeah, I liked it. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Quite a general title. So do you want to give us a bit of a rundown of what it's actually about, what the story kind of is? Yeah, so on its basic level, it's a story about the editing and compiling process of the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, So the main story sort of starts in 1886, which was about 20 years after the whole thing kind of started when they started compiling the Oxford English Dictionary. But it was sort of only after about seven years after James Murray was brought on as the editor of the Oxford English Dictionary. And he had what was called the scriptorium put in his back garden, which was basically a corrugated iron shed which functioned as basically a little studio in which all these little like editors and compilers would sit in the studio and like make the dictionary sort of happen, which is I love that. Hilarious. Yeah, scriptorium. Really cool. I want a yeah. scriptorium. Yeah. One day, Tess, you will have a scriptorium. <laughs> Your own scriptorium. <laughs> <laughs> so the story of the novel is a fictional character called Esme, whose father works in the scriptorium. So naturally she grows up with this sort of love for words. And the story sort of follows her from a very early age through to about 1915. Um, And the book has its title because Esme starts collecting discarded words from the dictionary and placing them in a bit of like a little box that she has. 
and at one point she carves like the dictionary of lost words onto the onto the box and she starts expanding this and ends up with her own sort of dictionary of words unconventional words used by everyday people that don't kind of make it into the dictionary so that's essentially the sort of like bare bones of the narrative is that she compiles this kind of like but obviously there's all this other stuff that's happening to Esme around her life so uh Mm. yeah I don't want to spoil all that too much because it's interesting, but yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Nice. No, that's a really interesting premise for a book. I know, yeah. So does it kind of work the words into the story or into the writing or is that kind of just a separate, like that's just part of the plot? Or Yeah, so, sense? yeah, no, I know what you mean. The words themselves kind of work, get sort of introduced to the reader as she's sort of finding them out herself. So I'll give an example a little bit later for how how it's sort of formatted within the book as well. But yeah, so I'll explain it a little bit later about sort of how it comes to happen in the, in the narrative as well. Yeah, excellent. So did you want to tell us a little bit about how it came about then? Who's the author and how's it been received? How did they think of this idea? Yeah, so the book has a little bit of an Adelaide connection, which is cool. Pip Williams, the author, lives in the Adelaide Hills. Um, she's originally oh, from the UK. Cool. So she's done a few authors' events around Adelaide. She did one at Imprints on Hindley Street and stuff like that, which mm-hmm. was really cute. She says in her author's note that the, sort of, the book sort of came about because she kind of wondered if words have different meanings um, to different genders. This is part of the theme of the work, which I'll kind of expand upon a little bit later when I sort of give some examples there. But for the most part, the book was really warmly received by readers. I should also mention that it only came out this year. So it's sort of like hot off the press at the moment. Mm -hmm. And that's why I don't really want to go too in-depth with the plot elements. Um, But it has 4.3 on Goodreads already. And it's only an Australian published novel at the moment, but it's been sold off internationally for publication next year. So it's been really, like, when I sort of had a quick Google, it's been really praised by, like, the... uh, done by a firm press which i think is melbourne based it's usually melbourne based in australia but <laughs> basically there's a whole list of like different publishers that have picked it up and i wouldn't be surprised if the movie rights get sold for this like i think it would make mm. a very interesting movie but the a review for the conversation Rosalind petalin from the university of queensland said that my advice to the readers is is similar to her own counter to her own experience of reading it experience the dictionary of lost words for yourself rather than getting swept away by the hype don't gobble it up as i did the first time around savor its heart-wrenching detail which i think is mm-hmm. how i sort of read it because like, obviously i started reading it in um july for the podcast and then kind of slowly started to read it a bit more over august and found that the reading of it slowly but then sort of picking up the pace a bit was really enjoyable but yeah I think the first part of it is really slow and that might just be because the main character starts out as a child and I'm not usually Mm -hmm. like and again Tess it's written in first person so which is something that we don't (laughs) like I don't know if I know I looked it up when you were and I'm I'm, like I don't think I can do it (laughs) I'm fairly ambivalent towards first person so Ah, I can be the kind of yeah vaguely pro first person on the panel (laughs) need someone on the first person team you know yeah that's right but yeah I I think that's what I struggled with a little bit is that way that it's written in first person and then I was kind of like as I went and I kind of just sort of like let it go it was it was okay (laughs) Uh, but yeah it's that I think it was a really nice story to kind of accompany 
any of my life stresses that were happening at the time. Like I sort of picked it up after we moved and found that I could just go and, you know, on a Sunday, it's one of those books that you kind of enjoy reading on a Sunday when you've got nothing to do and you've just going like got a cup of tea and you can just go sit in bed and have a like read of this person's life. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of nice historical fiction that doesn't have anything too gory or like as we've had, you know, so many different kind of trigger warnings for our episodes because every time you pick a story up, there's something horrible (laughs) going on. But yeah. 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 That's nice. <laughs> it is. Um, it's nice to read something sort of comforting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was definitely very comforting and it was very, very nice book. Like it wasn't, there wasn't, there was a few like bits and pieces that were obviously a bit stressful and distressing and like dramatic for, you know, emotional purposes. Yeah. It was just a really comfortable, nice little, little book that I think people will really love. And obviously people are really loving, like it's always doing the rounds in those, um, all the historical fiction Facebook groups that I'm a part of, it's always like up there going like, yes, read this, you know, it's Mm. really good. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's something that happens with like history, like academic history as well. We do tend to focus on those more kind of negative moments. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Gory moments. So yeah, it's good. And I think that this is on the other side of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Or or I feel like it tends to be quite heroic. Like it's either like very Mm. dramatic in a kind of bad way, or it's like the stories of like these big heroes. And it's nice to have something that feels like significant, but not like not as maybe not as dramatic in either of those kind of polarizing ways. I'll talk about this a little bit later, but I also watched alongside this or after I finished reading it, uh, The Madman and the Professor, which is about Dr. James Murray. And that is a very interesting contrast to this story. Mm. So yeah, I'll talk about that a little bit later, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it definitely ties into what you're saying, Tess, of that sort of like mm. heroic slash goriness of the history that's like the underlying history that is involved in these sort of things. Yeah. Okay. Well, do you want to first tell us a little bit more then you kind of mentioned it's a, like the dates and that it's about the dictionary, but do you want to kind of talk a bit more about that historical context and the period? Mm-hmm. I admit, I really don't know anything. I feel like as soon as no. anyone says the dictionary, I think of that Black Matter <laughs> episode. Oh yeah, yeah, and for that's sure. Like all I know. So sausage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's good to know the black black adder can still get a laugh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have, and like I think I'm trying to remember. What, I'm gonna Google it. So I don't remember what the title was because I feel like it was clever. Like ink and something. Oh, anyway. uh, probably like Ink and Inkability or something like that. Because all the yes. titles, all <laughs> the titles were like rip off of Jane Austen. Jane right? Austen, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) well, I have to say that I'm kind of becoming a bit more of a like, what's the word? Like a blossoming Edwardian enthusiast. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Over the break, I've really gotten into this thing called uh, history bounding, which I really want to like investigate as a in an academic sense. But my like style, I just gravitates towards the Edwardian period. Like I rewatched Downton Abbey simply for the fashion recently, and Mm -hmm. I mean. The, the history in that show is a different thing, but the fashion's really good because they use like this uh, fashion historian expert who uh, who works on the on the show. But yeah, anyway, that's how's kind of like I was really enjoying just being in the Edwardian setting of this book because yeah. I'm like this feels very like I enjoy it. I like the the way that authors tend to like ramble up to the war as well, like whether they sort of they just choose to make it look idyllic or whether they choose to make it like, you know, everything was chaos and terrible anyway. So the war was kind of like needed, all that sort of stuff. Um, I find that really fascinating. But anyway, I mean, the main focus of this book is the compiling of the dictionary. So as you can imagine, it's got quite a small setting. 
Uh, it's mostly based around Oxford. And it's also got quite an upper class focus. So most of the people within it are like well-educated, mostly Oxford educated because obviously it's the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, so yeah, as you can imagine, these are people who can afford to go to university. And one interesting fact though, is that James Murray received an honorary doctorate during his time completing the first volume. So he wasn't an Oxbridge scholar or anything. He was Scottish and he'd sort of sort of made his own way in the world. Mm -hmm. And because of this sort of, uh, achievement of compiling the dictionary, he essentially got his honorary doctorate, which is really cool. Yeah. Uh, I think what's cool about the novel is it tends to shy away from presenting that education snobbishness instead of telling us about like, instead it sort of opts to tell us more about Esme's relationships with the, the family's maid, Lizzie, and sort of help, ra- who sort of helps raise Esme after her mother dies. Um, and there's also this myriad of random people that she meets. Primarily, yes, as I said, it's set in Oxford with some other locations around England. Um, and then there's a tiny little bit about Adelaide at the end of the novel, but I don't really want to spoil that. Mm-hmm. I think that's just a little cute nod to Adelaide, to be honest. So there's a lot of a lot of sort of allusion or not explicit detail, but allusion to class within that sort of period as well. Um, the other thing it sort of touches on a little bit is the suffrage movement in the UK. Uh, Esme makes friends with an actress and the actress's brother, who's a costumer. Uh, and through that, she sort of hears about the suffrage movement. She goes to a couple of meetings and gatherings, but it's not too extreme. So she doesn't really like get involved in anything too bad. Um, and of course, the war comes in 1914 um, and Esme's husband, I won't spoil that too, mu- too much either, mm. ends up going to the war as well. I'm sure we can guess how that ends. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Probably. Um, but it does, I think it does a lot of good a good job of covering a lot of things within a small space lots of inclusion of new technologies um the sort of wonderment of the idea of collecting all these words which i'll touch on a little bit later Um, and the social and political issues sort of weave themselves throughout the story instead of rather being like shoved down your throat as some historical fiction tends to do and i think that's kind of why it's a bit more of a pleasant representation of uh, like one woman's story during the time so like i don't know i'm trying to think of other examples i mean Having recently watched a Downton Abbey, I think the first season is very much like political dramas all about like yelling, people yelling and people, you know, falling down the street or like even uh, suffragette as well. It's all like, let's blow up everything and s- stuff like that. So I think it's kind of like, while that's good stuff to show, because obviously it happened, it's historically accurate. I'm not like denying that. It's kind of cool to see like how someone like Esme, who doesn't necessarily have the connections with these groups, would kind of like dabble within stuff that's happening around her politically right. and socially at the time. So, yeah. So she's not kind of at the centre of all these things, but she's moving between these different events and they're impacting on her day-to-day life, but not yeah, at yeah. the centre of it. Yeah, that's and cool. It's, it's a very small group of people that the novel focuses on and obviously they're in Oxford so she's not like going off to various places she goes travels a little bit within the UK and she has some friends who like write to her from various places within the UK she goes to school at one point in a boarding school when she's in her like early teens because she's causing trouble in the scriptorium basically just being a bit more controversial than she should be but like apart from that she kind of spends most of her time in Oxford working in the sort of dictionary torium and stuff like that so yeah it's a small group of people and I think what it's kind of cool about is the way that 
Pip Williams has focused a lot on the female characters within the setting. So rather than like going, you know, James Murray is this hero and he like compiled the dictionary and it's more like all of his daughters helped out with the, with the compiling the dictionary. There were servants who were involved in like basically keeping the operation running, you know, all of that sort of stuff, which I think is really cool. And obviously that's kind of a very nice, like, you know, not top down, but the other way around sort of like looking at the sort of like, lower like class bottom up kind bottom of. up kind of <laughs> bottom up kind of like uh you know interrogation of like what happens beneath the surface yeah and it sounds like i feel like it's a difficult line for historical fiction to walk sometimes to try and include because obviously like those things happen if you write one person's life that goes for you know 80 years or whatever you're going to go through there's gonna be so many kind of significant historical events that happen but sometimes it feels very forced like it feels like they're kind of trying to tick boxes of a whole bunch of different big events that wouldn't yeah. necessarily have really mm. affected an individual person's life as well but it sounds like they she's kind of found a way to to do that in a way that doesn't feel forced yeah especially like a woman like Esme mm. you know she kind of has her class as her like kind of backup like her they're not well off but they live in a nice house they've got enough money to employ a maid um and a cook and so you know she also finds employment in the scriptorium eventually as well so she obviously is financially independent Mm. as well so she's obviously in a very unique position in that context but yeah I think that that's I think as well like timing wise she's done a really like Pip Williams has done a really cool thing with like we've got the first little section as her as a child obviously so kind of I kind of glazed over that stuff because I'm not that that interested. <laughs> but once she becomes, <laughs> 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 um, <Yeah>, children. children. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. And then uh, the there's the middle section is really interesting because like it's set basically within a sort of ten to fifteen year period, and then like she chooses to end end the main part of the story in um, 1915, and there's a sort of like epilogue bit that's set in 1928. So she kind of has deliberately sectioned off these sort of time periods, I think, to kind of be able to sort of focus on things a bit more thoroughly rather than to to be like... She could have decided not to end it in 1915 and spent, like, you know, heaps of time talking about the war and how that impacted mm. the compiling of the dictionary and all that sort of stuff. So I think that she's chosen nicely to, like, streamline it, obviously, to especially to sort of, like, include things like the suffrage movement and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So you talk about them like compiling and collecting words. So how do these words actually like come into the narrative here and what are they doing with them and what's Esme doing with words? It's really actually probably the most interesting part of the book. As someone obviously who loves words and the way that like words can tell interesting stories themselves but basically the inspiration for the story was that there was an incident in 1901 where the word bond maid was found to be missing from the a b first volume so words a and b the oed so i'll just use that for now on the oxford english dictionary the explanation for this which happens in the first 50 pages is that the men can't quite justify it being in the dictionary So Dr. Murray comes up with with this method, essentially, for how to include words into into the dictionary and how to, like, like basically say, yes, this one can be included, this one can't. So there needs to be at least a few hundred years of usage through quotage and evidence within literature. And bond made, which was sort of a relatively new term at that time, and is obviously gendered, um, falls out of the, like, 
list of things to end up in the dictionary and kind of ends up in a bit of essentially what is called a slush pile that like it's put away they're not really that interested and it falls down somewhere and Esme basically picks it up and she hides it in her like in her box which ends up being the dictionary of lost words but also when in 1901 it sort of came out that it wasn't in the dictionary and it ends up being a huge deal and uh the editors all got in trouble but it's sort of this kind of thing sparks Esme's obsession with finding those unused words so she kind of probes at that like idea of the gender stuff so you know why is bond made less important than you know these other words that are being included so she starts recording things that her maid lizzie says like turns of phrases and she talks to people in the marketplace and makes friends with a stall holder who has like this wonderful colloquial way of speaking and she works out a process of recording these words which is quite similar to like dr murray's kind of process along with a quotation so i thought i'd include a little example from the book to kind of give you an example so the um the word is knackered. Mm-hmm. What does knackered mean, Lizzie? Mrs. Ballard, who's there, like cook and house, other housemaid, scoffed. You could ask anyone in service that question, Esme. We'd all have an answer. Lizzie poured the tea and sat down. It means you're tired. Why don't you just say tired then? She thought about it. It's not just tired from lack of sleep. It's tired from work, physical work. Then a little bit later, as Lizzie and Mrs. Ballard watched on, I wrote, and then in the book is sort of like this little italicized quotation, knackered. I get up before dawn to make sure everyone in the big house will be warm and fed when they wake up and I don't go to sleep till they're snoring. I feel knackered half the time, like a worn out horse, no good for nothing. Lizzie Lester, 1902. So that's kind of how she Mm. kind of, collects these words as she has this quotation from the person that she sourced it from to kind of understand the context in which it's being used and um, some of the other words that she kind of compiles uh, along the way uh, is suffrage obviously sisters in the term that are in the suffrage context so us as fellow sisters in the suffrage movement game as in on the game as in prostitution quickening as in the child is quickening so the quickening that happens uh what they what the old term for like when the baby starts to move that kind of thing Mm -hmm. a dolly mop which is an occasional prostitute essentially so someone who does sexual favors but isn't not full-time on the game as it were yeah (laughs) and most controversially she finds out what the c word is which i won't say yet because of course to our protagonist, she's never heard this before, but obviously as Australians, we hear this far <laughs> too often in casual conversation. But it's like a huge yeah. deal and like there's a, at least a page and a half where it's just like, what does this mean? What is this word? And then I think she actually just tries to drop it in conversation with some other people and everyone's like, <gasps> <laughs> so they're sort of, So they're written like a little entry that kind of like it's like yeah italicized like it's kind of separate right. so the, the word book, itself is that what you mean the word is so is separate in the like paragraph for example mm-hmm. so it's like okay. separated out and the word itself has like it's in capital letters and mm-hmm. then underneath there's quotations in italics and then it has a little like person that it's like attributed to mm. so it's really cute like i like that that thing how like how often is that sorry i interrupted you how often is that i was trying to get a sense of like is that sort of like one a chapter like is it kind of spaced out or is it yeah, it's spaced out awesome. a lot. It's mm-hmm. sort of, she, so Esme deliberately starts going to the market with Lizzie on Sundays or uh, Sundays or Saturdays. I can't remember which one. Um, yeah. On the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she, um, 
starts talking to this particular stallholder who's um, quite poor, very sickly, basically has these little random little trinkets that she's made. Um, but she has this wonderful way of talking. I don't quite know. Like, it's sort of Cockney-esque, but obviously she's in Oxford, so it's not quite. But um, right. she literally every every weekend will go and sort of find out a word from her but then obviously she finds out all these other words from her own like the way that her story unfolds as well so you know she learns things through her life experience and like like knackered for example she asks that question when she's quite young but like obviously she hasn't heard that word used in a context so she kind of stops people when they're talking and goes what do you mean that word what's that word mean but yeah i like i kind of like that sort of theme of it because obviously when you when you're in a scriptorium everything's really formal everything like she part of her job that she gets when she's a little bit older is basically to go to uh the Bodleian library and essentially spend the day looking at this one particular word and trace it through like different literature contexts different other like other contexts to basically ensure that it's at least a couple of hundred years old if not older in terms to make it sort of qualify for the the dictionary and the placement in the dictionary so yeah so it's kind of like drawing that line between like the formal English language and the everyday language that's spoken on the street Mm -hmm. in the in the kitchens of these places where these people living you know that kind of thing which I think is really really fascinating yeah I'm actually it's kind of interesting along those lines as well. I'm actually like listening to an audio book of the secret garden at the moment as well. And I don't know if people, if you guys have read that or if people have read that, but essentially like part of it is like spoken in Yorkshire dialect. And uh-huh. of course, Mary Lennox who's grown up in India and like Imperial India and is like not been exposed to anything apart from like her mother's way of like way of talking or talking down to her servants, essentially. She's just mm. like, this language is fascinating. It's amazing. And of course, <laughs> Karen Gillan does the audiobook as well. And she does this Yorkshire, like, turn of phrase, so good. But, like, it was really interesting to, like, come from this book and then, like, listening to this book and going, like, there's so, like, the, lang- the way that language is spoken, the way that it's expressed is so much as interesting as it is when it's written down. Mm. So, yeah, that's a little ramble. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's cool. But it's also, it's cool to have that included in books because I think that's a, a type of, like, historical kind of specificity that a lot of historical fiction misses. Like, the fact, the, mm. the assumption that language has always kind of been pretty similar, at least in recent years, like, in kind of the yeah. last few centuries. Like, people might think, maybe if you think ancient or medieval, you sort of think they would have spoken differently. But people don't realise quite how much it, it changes all the time and it's always kind of yeah. developing and historically yeah. specific. And the fact that she's found such a neat way to kind of tie it into a plot and Mm. make it drive the plot is really cool. And the Mm. fact that it highlights so much to do with like class and social difference. And uh, yeah, that's really, it's really interesting. I was actually thinking about that sort of language thing uh, because we just taught a Knight's Tale, uh, Tess and I, in the course (laughs) that we're doing. And I was thinking about the language that they were using and I'm like, they would not have spoken like this. (laughs) And it's it's like they're they're English, but they're in France. And it's just like, (laughs) (laughs) very confusing. But anyway. Uh, it'd be really interesting to see if someone would actually do like a full movie or something in like middle English, like people would actually go <laughs> see it or not. <laughs> but yeah, the last thing that I was going to add a little bit about that sort of uh, uh, language stuff is that um, I'm going to spoil one thing and it's going to come up right now. So brace yourself. So uh, at the time, uh, Esme's fiance at the time, so this is sort of getting towards more 1910 times in the in the book in the story 1910 times 
at the uh, so Esme's fiance at the end at that time finds this collection of words alongside Lizzie because Lizzie knows about it, uh, and he binds them because he's a bookbinder uh, for the uh, OED project. And instead That's of giving cute. her an engagement ring, he gives her this dictionary of lost words. Aww. But he titles it "Women's Words and Their Meanings," which is really cute. Like he kind of pulls it together and he's like edited by Esme Nichol. So like uh, that's something else that always happens is that she, he's, she's getting it from women as, in particular as well. I was about like, to be like, that seems condescending to be like, these are your women's words. But no, I understand now. It was intentionally women's words. Yeah. <laughs> these are the women's words that are left out of the, you know, OED and all that sort yes. of stuff. So yes. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's not like when that pen I mean, company this... came out with a women's pen. Women's <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I felt like, wow. From these are your women's words. They don't get to be in the book. But it's her being like, these are the women's words that were excluded. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And then he's like, obviously. So, I mean, the idea of someone binding a book for engagement present, like, instead of a ring is, like, super, like, yes. <laughs> More of that. It's a bit like, you wrote a book. So I'm going to give it to you, back to you, for your engagement. <laughs> but he's done yeah. the binding part. He put binding. gold letters on it and Eric. And leather. Very, I was just thrown by the women's words bit. Yes. <laughs> no, I spent all that time finding it, and then you just like, "Oh my way. god!" <laughs> no, it is no. It's really cute. So, yeah. That was me being a pessimist from the twenty. <laughs> <laughs> right, this is an optimistic book test. Get optimistic. Yeah, I have. I forgot. <laughs> cool. Well, do you think it sounds like some of it is fairly kind of historically accurate or worked kind of interesting ideas from the time in? Do you think it actually would be a book that people could learn about this period from? It can kind of help to educate people? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if not a lot of people know much about the dictionary's creation. Like, as you pointed out, Tess, like you, well, I certainly didn't, like, <laughs> no idea. <laughs> so I think that. The, it does a really good job of highlighting that and bringing it to the forefront. I think it's so done a really nice job of including Dr. James Murray too, who was a central figure on the project. Like his, his daughters all get involved, like I mentioned before. And they're all sort of friends with Esme along, um, in the book. And I mean, it's also uh, always interesting to explore how like non-aristocratic women got involved with the suffrage movement and, and saw themselves as part of that movement. We don't have, like I said, not as much direct involvement. I mean, one of the characters that like the actress that I mentioned gets involved in one of the acts of destruction and she sort of turns up to the house and is like, Oh, I've hurt myself trying to blow up this politician's house, Um, which is interesting, but it's not actually that dramatic. Like I think, Mm. especially in films like suffrage, suffragette, suffrage, especially films like Suffragette, it's all really dramatic and like covert and everyone's sort of talking, uh, talking behind closed doors and stuff, but where she's like, they, these meetings are happening in pubs and people are like, you know, talking about it openly. So yeah, I don't know. I think I'd hope that readers would look at this book as a whole and like to know a bit more about ordinary people. The spirit's like sort of quite often, especially in popular culture, much more like associated with Edwardian extravagance or like brushing over all of it to get to the first world war. And obviously it's a lot of stuff happening technology wise, society wise, you know, politically and socially. So I feel like this book does a good job of highlighting that there's quite a lot of stuff happening. That's not just like, Oh, we only have the suffragettes or, you know, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening and there's a lot of stuff, interesting like social movements happening, especially regarding class. So yeah, I think that the book does a good job with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Is there anything else you'd like to follow up with on it? Yeah, so as I mentioned, uh, the main thing I wanted to talk about is that at the same time I watched The Man, Man and the Professor, which is the 2019 movie with Mel Gibson and 
Sean Penn. And this is set just a bit prior to the main book, the, the main time period of the book. Um, and it's based off the surgeon of Crowthorn by Simon Winchester. And Winchester is sort of known for his like popular histories and a whole range of different topics. Um, but this book delves into the relationship between a patient at an asylum, Dr. William Chester, and how he helped with some of the entries with the OED. And so he and Murray had an ongoing relationship and essentially Chester was one of those volunteers that they so often had with this compiling of this, um, of the dictionary. And, and he was in his asylum sort of just like working away at these books, at these words, sorry. Anyway, after I finished the book, I watched the film. And I mean, the film's pretty average, but I thought it would be a very interesting thing to do to compare them because the dictionary takes a very female-oriented view so we have a female, a woman as a protagonist. Uh, she makes it her goal to try and find women as a source of knowledge as well. Whereas the madman is definitely, men are great. And while they're not a part of established society and maybe underdogs, they're still great. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course we have Mel Gibson reprising his Scottish accent as David, uh, David as Dr. Murray as well, which I think I is very funny. Lockie's face. <laughs> just just Mel Gibson in general really yeah. <laughs> provokes that expression yeah. yeah um I don't think he directed it but yeah it's it's interesting there are like three women characters in this film and they mm. all seem to pull faces at these men like that's all they do really like they just kind of go, oh. and the, the wife of the wife of James Murray shits me to tears because she's the woman <laughs> who um she was the woman in uh, Pride and Prejudice and so she was, we all know what she's like. She's like actually a really good actress and she's, she's the oh, wife and she just sits there and she's just like, I disapprove right. of this. And that's what they do. Historically, like the wife of, of James Murray was someone who is written about in Pride and Prejudice. And no, I was no, like, no, 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 no. How? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, no. She's the actress <laughs> the in the actress 1995. The right. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> But yeah, she's very like strange and judgy. And so the whole story about Dr. William Chester is very interesting, but he basically, he was a, a doctor in the uh, Civil War in America. So he was an American mm-hmm. and he went to, I can't remember exactly why he ended up in the UK, but essentially he has a mental breakdown. Part of it is probably to do with PTSD. <laughs> um, but he ends up murdering someone in a, in a street in Oxford um, because he thinks that he's after him. And right. so interestingly, he forms this really interesting like relationship with the wife of the guy that he killed. Um, and like offers her like his like pension as well to kind of help pay for her kids. Cause she's got like heaps of kids as you do in that period of time. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, she, they form that relationship, but he just, he went completely like off the rails quite a few times and of course because this is like the mid 19th century there was just no adequate treatment for him and the you know the there was a scene with some uh, phrenology so that was kind of oh, cool. <laughs> oh I, maybe i need to watch this <laughs> yes um he was measured like he was doing stuff with his head to kind of like understand yeah. how to better treat him but they do some very interesting treatments and like at one point he kind of like I'm not going to explain exactly what he did, but he mutilates himself because he worries that he will do something quite sinful. So yeah, he's, he, he like has a real break, a few breakdowns and stuff. Um, But anyway, the main point of that is the relationship between Mel Gibson and Sean Penn's characters. They're kind of like 
yeah and i just think that that's really interesting and i honestly think that dictionary kind of does a better job of exploring dr murray's character and the and like because he's not very in it very much but he's kind of like that sort of stern but kind of gentle boss type he's got rules but if you follow the rules and get work done he likes you kind of thing so it's interesting experience the way that gender plot pays a part in both of these stories and how they were told particularly as pip williams's goal was to understand how much of a relationship words have with gender and gender perceptions so naturally bond made being left out of the dictionary was a big deal in the film but like steve coogan who's in the film his character just gets fired and that's kind of it but like yeah i just kind of found it interesting like mm. in this in the book it was just kind of like oh it's been left out of the thing obviously it got put in the dictionary in 1928 so everyone can like go check out the english dictionary <laughs> yeah you'll find it but have any of you seen this film at all? No. No, I haven't, but I remember seeing the trailer for it when I was watching another movie and oh. thinking that it did seem like this very, like, yeah, heroic look at these people who are outcasts but kind of overcame it and this great men kind of narrative, yeah. which yeah. made it especially annoying that it starred Mel Gibson and Sean Penn, <laughs> who are not the greatest people in the world. Um, and I was, Yeah, and so I was just like, I'm uh, yeah, no thanks, pass. <laughs> I was about to say mistakenly that it sounds very very homoerotic but what i meant was homosocial <laughs> um but yeah it's something very much focuses on those like relationships between men as mm. the kind of foundation for what was going on and so sounds like dictionary of lost words does a much better job of not telling just like a masculinist story mm. dictionary mm. yeah is, yeah Pip Williams mentions the book in the um author's note as well she kind of said like someone gave this to me and that kind of sparked the idea but Honestly, the story is a bit more like found in between the entries of the Oxford English Dictionary of like, well, we we know like things are missing and we know things are missing. I find that really interesting because today, obviously, I think it's the Oxford English Dictionary has like a word of the year and the year, like the word is only being like in circulation for like, it's selfie was one of them for like, it's, obviously that's not going to be a thousand years old word you know and i find that really interesting that the standard has obviously changed the more that like language has become a bit more like what's the word like <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i don't know are you trying it to like it's evolved evolving more it's a, evolved yeah. and kind of like a bit more like everyone kind of is using the same kind of language rather than like one yeah. person's mm. yeah that's what let's i was formalize say, that's what i'm trying to say less formal yeah. less yeah that's what i'm trying yeah, to say or even if you know it's not actually evolving quicker or there's not actually more words but the way that we communicate about it means that words are more widespread like there's not as much kind of localized slang in the same way because people yeah are like, it's more like oh, homogenized through so, the internet homogenized yeah. that's the word i was looking for like <laughs> yeah. it's yeah like that got there. yeah we got there yeah, yeah i just looked at the movie and realized it came out last year mm-hmm. i was featuring like I don't know. I don't know mm. why. <laughs> like older Mel Gibson. Yeah, no, someone actually gave <laughs> no. Mel Gibson a job. No, as in younger, older as in a while ago. Wow. No, they've all got like salt and pepper beards and stuff. Yeah. I'll, I'll watch the trailer later. <laughs> I, I rented it on uh, Amazon. Okay. I want my $7 back. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, if not that, what would you suggest if people are interested in the period? Like, what would mm-hmm. you suggest that people go and other other kind of material that people could follow up to learn more about this. Yeah, so I didn't really have that many. Um, I mean, if you're interested, go read the the book by Simon Winchester, which I mentioned, and I'll put it in the show notes as well, because I think that goes into a little bit more detail about the whole process of it getting started. Um, there's so some that's ma- the one that 
that movie the man based on. was based on okay cool. yeah yeah right. um but of course because it's an interpretation of a historical text it's a little bit yeah. anyway um but yeah i mean they didn't do too much external research mainly for lack of time but um i just kind of sort of sat with the text a little bit and mm. sort of like to let it be as it was kind of thing um in that way it sort of didn't really need that much external research i think um however there's plenty of books about the Edwardians out there. If you just Google the Edwardians and look at Google <laughs> books, there is so much out there. Lots about the suffragettes as well. Books written by suffragettes. Most recently, I guess the one by Claire Wright, Our Daughters of Freedom. That's probably a good one to look at because it's about how Australian suffragettes went over to the UK to kind of tell them how to do it because obviously Australian women had the vote before the people, uh, women in the UK. I also saw Pip Williams at an online author event in April with Thomas Keneally because they both just released books at the same time. That was really good. She also, in the background, had her like first edition volume of, I don't actually know which letters it was, but she had first edition volume, volume of the um, OED, which she was really proud of, which was quite cute. And they sort of talked nicely about the book. Thomas Keneally actually has his like quotation on the front of the book and he was like this there will not be this year a more original novel published. I just know it. It was a very old man way of saying that, but old. <laughs> but he was full of praise for it. Like he really loved it. Um, yeah, I, that was through Harry Hartog and it was a ticketed event. So I'm not sure that it would be available to others, but she did an author talk through first chapter, which is a thing that, um, or was it chapter one, something like that event done by Dimix, which is all available on Facebook. So you can go and have a look at that as well. So she, that she's just basically talking about the book. I definitely recommend the book as well. Like, I don't know, it's really cozy. It's an interesting historical fiction and I've tried not to spoil too much. The thing about this, especially because it's been an Australian release is that it's available through places like Target, Big W and Kmart as well, which I think is where I got it. I got it from Kmart, but on a side note, I would recommend supporting local independent bookshops as much as possible but yeah yeah, yeah. We, like, we, I, we have to say you know with a bit of a caveat that obviously sometimes you just have to get something that you can afford like yeah so you like can that's nice you know, i got this but. for like 16 dollars from kmart whereas like if you go to like dimmix or like you know what's another independent bookshop abby's or something in in thing or imprints in um adelaide you know you're gonna pay 32 dollars, and sometimes you know 32 dollars for a book is a bit steep so yeah but yeah it was yeah it's good i think it's i really actual, cool. you should yeah. read it it's just nice is a nice kind of thing to yeah with. yeah exactly yeah <laughs> I, like and, I might go grab a copy it's yeah it sounds interesting yeah for sure and, and it's also featured a lot on the sort of like audiobooks top audiobooks of the year as well so i think the audiobook might be really good as well so i do you think i should in, do you think I should do it despite my dislike of first person? Is it worth it? I feel like if it's an audio book, it might be better. That's true. Yeah, you're having someone read it to you as a first person. It's more like someone like reading a diary or something, but like. You've just got to do first person exposure therapy. Just, <laughs> just expose yourself to it. Sometimes it's fine. I find like if it's done well or if it's done for a reason, like often when books are kind of written really colloquially or like they do something with the fact that you're getting someone's voice. Yeah. And I really enjoy it. But sometimes yeah. I just find, particularly with historical fiction and like romance novels, I'm always like, this is just annoying. Yeah. <laughs> and it ends up being very ahistorical. Like it's a modern way of writing and thinking and they're trying to, or they try too hard to make it seem like, you know, Victorian. I'm like, I th- yeah. annoying. <laughs> I think it works in this context and okay. I think that's it. Because like, it's... I can understand what you mean as well because sometimes first person comes across quite whiny and yes. like... 
nobody sort of thinks like that in their head. Like that's the other oh. thing that I really find frustrating. Yeah. Like you're sort of walking around going, I looked at the window, out the window and saw a bird. <laughs> I saw a trash bird doing it. <laughs> I mean, I certainly think all the time about how I look out the window at my yes. trash bed. Yeah. <laughs> I write those monologues in my head. <laughs> I should write a historical fiction novel about trash birds. Oh, for sure. It'll be called Trash Bird. <laughs> yeah. It's a um, history of the present. <laughs> 2020 through the eyes of Trash Bird. Oh, my God. Oh, that, that could work, actually. Yeah. Actually, really could. <laughs> it really could. <sighs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. So we can, like, move on to any other recommendations has anyone read or seen other things that are non-historical fiction related or are whatever i don't really care anymore by this point <laughs> maybe because we've had more time but i have actually consumed media that is not yeah. related to degree recently wow um, so one is a show called i hate Susie. i think it's on netflix oh, so it might be stan i can't remember it's billy billy piper um oh, yeah. it's Oh my God. It just, it's, I don't even know. Like, it's not like necessarily that interesting a topic to me personally, but um, it's the way that it's filmed. So she's having kind of a breakdown throughout the show. Um, spoilers, it happens in the very first like five minutes. Um, she's a, a famous actress, singer, etc., And she has uh, private photos leaked on the internet. Um, and that's sort of like her life spins out of into chaos. Um, but the way it's filmed is really interesting because it just captures like, the panic or the anxiety or the anger that she's feeling in these different moments, like the way that it, something about the way it's filmed and the way she acts it was like, it was awful to watch at times. Cause I was like, Oh my God, I feel so stressed. <laughs> like it just, I don't know. I thought it found it really interesting. Like camera work, the editing wise, because mm. you really like felt what she was feeling. I thought it was really cool. That's my, mm. yeah. And then also I finally played Last of Us 2, which we've talked, I feel like we talked about yeah. on the podcast. Yeah, I saw your tweets about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like we might have controversial opinions on it. <laughs> yes. Lucky not, and I have talked about it. Not, not great. <laughs> we have some it's interesting. Complaints. <laughs> yeah. mm. but- <laughs> I feel like we need like really? a Last of Us 2 special or something. <laughs> yeah, we could blow this out to like two hours if we start talking Literally about the Last of Us We like scheduled a time to chat about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like we have so many things to say. Anyway, but yeah, yeah. that's my, uh, that's my non, not at all historical suggestion. Cool. That's excellent. I've, I've, I'm interested in that show actually. So mm. it feels like it's sort of based on like obviously – is it based on anything? Because it feels like it's based on some, like, celebrities from the UK. Yeah, I don't know who it's specifically based on, but I do feel like it's quite a general or recent, like, there's happened to quite a few women, so they probably could have interviewed people and asked them about their experiences. I'm not sure. I don't think it's happened to Billy Piper, but, like, I don't know. No. Um, but, yeah, it's a fairly... Some of the, the things that are represented are obviously, like, this exact thing pretty much happened. Like it's kind of a generalized representation mm. of a lot of people's experiences is what I get from it, but I don't actually know. Yeah. Um, I am. Um, yeah. It's, I'm intrigued. I might put it on some stage. Yeah. Cause I was like, I'm not going to be interested in that. Like I'm not interested in sex scandals that much as a like thing, thing to sit down and watch a show about, but the way it was made was just so interesting. Mm. Like, this one episode where she's really angry about stuff. <laughs> it's a bit where she's in a shop and she's waiting for, she needs, she's like a shoe, she steps in poo and then she has to like, 
it's this whole time and you can just feel like you're watching it, like you're having the worst day um but she's like waiting and the shopkeeper's being really slow and the way it's filmed you just have this like feeling of building anxiety with her as you're waiting for this guy um and like you just want to snap like you're kind of oh it's just yeah i thought it was really cool yeah that's really cool yeah and so if we're sitting there like my partner was sitting there as someone who goes through a lot of various uh slightly more extreme versions of anxiety stuff than me um you know like panic attacks and stuff I feel like I, I can't relate to the kind of intensity of some of it but um she was sitting there being like yes that is what that feels like like the yeah. way it was done I was like oh cool <laughs> anyway. that's a good thing to know though like that they've actually done a good mm-hmm. job on that they must have I don't know how yeah they must have I think the people that worked on it at least or consulted or something must have some sense of how that feels because they really capture it mm. anyway. what about you <laughs> so we just got binge the new um oh yes streaming service so Logan and I have been like Going, binging we've been binging we've been binging a lot of the like sort of uk dramas and stuff that we can't really get on like netflix or um yeah so we just watched (laughs) we just watched the quiz which was really bad but it's basically based around those guys the like husband and wife who like cheated on who wants to be a millionaire when it first started in the late 90s early 2000s Um, and so basically, I don't know if you remember it, the listeners might like the, the coughing scandal. So basically they like the, an answer you don't remember at all. So they were basically no. this thing where like, uh, they would, he would oh, read the answers the answer. and, yes. Yes. The answers and like someone in the audience would be like, <coughs> and he changed his answer. So yeah, there was three episodes where it kind of focused on like them and it was quite interesting. It was just very, like very dramatically written. So it was <laughs> yeah, very kind of like. <laughs> just Logan was just like, oh, they would never talk like this in real life, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but I've also watched a few crime dramas. Uh, the one that I found really interesting, probably the most out of all of them was, uh, this is on SBS actually, it's the Salisbury Poisonings, which was about the mm. 2018 poisoning of two Russian, um, essentially two Russians in Salisbury by like the Russian government. But they use the same kind of like this really intense nerve attacking poison, which they were exposed to on their doorknob, they think. But because it's so potent, it could have it gone anywhere. So uh, a police officer ends up getting poisoned by it and stuff. Oh. Um, but yeah, it actually happened in 2018 and like, I don't really remember much coverage about it. Um, I was really surprised. I was like, what, this happened in 2018. Cause I remember that like one of the, that's uh, also very recent to make a like true story crime show about that's such a British thing though. Like we got into <laughs> a crime show format. Um, yeah. but yeah, no, it was really interesting. It's really well done. I mean, do you have any recommendations that you want to say oh, before we go seen, to the ending? <laughs> any nonfiction, non-historical fiction? Um, I've been watching, this is kind of historical, but it's more like fantasy horror. Mm. I've been watching Lovecraft, Lovecraft Country. Mm. Um, oh, I want to watch that. Yeah, it's interesting. really interesting. So it's like taking the works of H.P. Lovecraft, who was mm. obviously this gigantic racist and not a very nice person. And this like undercurrent of horror in his work is a lot of the time quite closely linked to his views on race relations in oh. America. Um, but it's putting an like 
you know, African-American protagonists at the centre of it. And so making the ties between these horror themes and like racism in America as an undercurrent through their history. So like as an example, the latest episode, one of the latest episodes, the one before was um, it's like a haunted house story. So the protagonists all moved into this old house uh, and then weird things start happening. It's like the house is trying to chase them out of it. Um, oh, cool. the, time, the house they've moved into is like in an all white neighborhood and they're a group of black people. And so they're also being like pushed out by the neighbors. And so it's this question of, is it supernatural? Is it the neighbors messing with them? And it's kind of tying those things together. Um, it's really interesting. So is it a bit more of a modern take on it though? Like they're sort of, playing around with the sort of themes that he kind of yeah wants. yeah okay cool yeah interesting yeah. yeah there's a lot of people that play call of cthulhu and stuff where i'm like i think you should know more about lovecraft than you do <laughs> <laughs> like maybe i'll be like just watch this tv show instead it'll get you through some of the themes yeah exactly you should think about when you play those games mm. <laughs> so the next book is an old favorite of yours right tess it is. I'm reading uh, People of the Book by Geraldine Brooks, which I read, my mum gave to me and was a book that she really liked mm-hmm. when I was first, like, I want, I like history. Um, this is kind of one of the first, like, adult historical fiction books that I read. Oh, that's nice. Um, yeah, and I briefly was, like, obsessed and determined to be a book conservator. I was like, I'm going to go into bookbinding. I did some courses on bookbinding uh, and conservation and then was like, I don't have the hands. Uh, not really, but it's among the things is how bad my eczema is. <laughs> Working yeah. with all that um, stuff would be bad for so it. I, uh, mm, and yeah. yeah, and I also like wasn't, I don't know, I wasn't vegetarian when I first <laughs> First read it and I forget how much she works with a lot of like, because she's working with like ancient techniques of bookbinding and stuff, like a lot of animal meats and like fats and various things that they use for a lot of those processes. Like, and so I don't know like if skin I'm and stuff like learning that. those things now. <laughs> um, I think that made me be uncomfortable. But anyway, yes. So it's, it's a really interesting uh, take. She's a, a modern, like the, the main character, the protagonist is a modern book conservator. And then she's restoring um, an old book and like finds stories throughout as she goes. And it kind of goes back into those stories and stuff. So I found it as, a, a younger person. I don't actually remember how old I was when I read it. Probably slightly too young. Early teens. I'm not sure. That, yeah, it really got me into the idea of what, like, studying history could be. Cool. Um, I think. So cool. I'm excited awesome. to, I started rereading it um, and I'm excited to, to talk about it and think about it now from my perspective now because I haven't reread it for a while. So, yeah. Yeah, I remember it coming out. I think I was in, like, early high school, mid-high school, mm-hmm. and it was a big, like, everyone was really obsessed with it and stuff. Mm. So, yeah, I remember them talking about it on the first Tuesday book club on ABC. If anyone remember oh, that? That's it. Yeah. Yeah, I missed that show a lot. <laughs> but yeah, I remember them talking about it. Yeah, it was interesting. Cool. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. And I think depending on the time, we might also be having a bonus episode uh, this month, possibly about The Greatest Showman we've talked about, because uh, I've not seen it, but I know a little bit about P.T. Barnum. And there have been some strong it. opinions expressed <laughs> by certain other people who have seen it. <laughs> and so we think that might be interesting to talk about. So lots of good stuff coming out before the end of the year. Uh, and don't I believe we're to saying that. Sorry. Yeah. I believe we're saying before the end of the year. No. It's, so, it's gone it. so quick. Yeah. 
Yeah, but if you're not too, like, despaired by the passage of time, then don't forget to subscribe to us <laughs> on Instagram or Twitter or like us on Facebook. Uh, and any feedback you have, you can email us at historicalfrictionspod at gmail.com. Nicely done. Nicely done. First time. <laughs> First time. <laughs> yeah. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to delving into people of the book next time or The Greatest Showman on Earth. Uh, Until then, happy reading!